Turn our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. This morning we continue in The Ugly Kings of Christmas. If you're visiting with us, you might be surprised at that sermon title, The Ugly Kings of Christmas. Well, there's a lot of those in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to the worst of the worst, no doubt about it. Manasseh is the worst of the worst. In fact, he's far worse than really our text gives us him credit for because if we went over all the things that he was actually participating in, we would be here for some days. I believe it would be days because so much could be explained. But our hope is that we will be able to look at the worst of the worst and even in the worst of the worst of the kings of either Judah or Israel, we will see, still see the light of Christmas shining brightly in the darkness. Well, let's Begin the reading of God's word from 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil then the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because... They have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. 
Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events of Manasseh's reign, and all he did, including the sin he committed, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace garden, the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. Let's pray, O Father in heaven, we ask that as we study your word together as your people this morning, that you would bless our reading and our study of your word and apply it to our own life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why so long? Why so long? This guy reigned for 55 years. The worst of the worst was the longest reign. No one comes close to the length of reign in Judah or Israel than Manasseh. But God, why did you let him reign so long? Couldn't you have taken care of him like you did Ammon after two years? And yet this guy, for 55 years, it seems to be unabated, completely and utterly desecrated every single square inch of the temple and of Jerusalem and of the entire region of Judah. What are you doing? You ever feel like that? What's God doing here? Why in the world are you letting evil abound? Why are, why are you allowing evil to run rampant? I mean, we're living in quite the cuckoo age, right? This is, this is, this is crazy time is what we're living in. It appears that there's a new war ready to begin every other week. New conflicts globally seeming to happen and at the cusp of something that everyone's talking, a new world war. It seems that evil is on the move. Maybe you have those questions. Why? I think that's the question I had for this guy. Why would you allow such a murderous, idolatrous, ugly king to rule so, so long. Why would you allow his rebellion to seem to pollute everything, to pollute everyone in Judah? And what we learn about his rebellion is that he's worse than grandpa. Remember grandpa? We talked about him last week, Ahaz. He too sacrificed his son in the fire, to the abominable god of the Ammonites named Molech. And it wasn't just a son, it was sons and daughters. But what we find of his son that, well, he's worse than grandpa. He's way worse. He has way more idols. And it does appear that there are, there are piles of paganism on the temple court. And I call those piles because that's what they're worth. They're piles. Altars seemingly sporadically placed throughout the temple on the lower court and in the upper court. There are two courts 
in Solomon's temple. There's the upper court close to the temple itself, and there is the lower court that surrounds the upper court. And it seems that he placed, for all the starry host, that means you got the sun, you got the moon, you got the celestial constellations, and then all the different kinds of constellations, you need to have an altar for them too, right? And then there's Baal, and there's Asherah, and of course it sounds like there's even a, a, a shrine to Molech and others, on and on and on it goes. These piles of paganism. And what is, I think, ironic for the reader when we have when the reader has just read about King Hezekiah, which is arguably the most righteous king in all of Israel's history next to David, it's Hezekiah. And what do we learn about Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 verse 4? Well, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it, even that serpent was used as a pagan place of worship. And what did Hezekiah do? He's the only king to ever do it. He broke down all the high places. He cut down all the astropoles. In every way, he is the, really the most righteous king that ever existed in the history of Judah and Israel. And his son has rebuilt them all. His son has put up the astros. His son has made certain all those, all those uh, altars that he destroyed, that were destroyed by his dad. He's erected them and more. So you might be wondering, how can such a son have such contempt for his father? That's, that's a question I have. Why the contempt for your father? They ruled together for 10 years, by the way. For 10 years. You have this overlap. It's probably 10 years. And most likely, a lot of these practices, of course, happen after the death of Hezekiah. But Hezekiah, why, why this dishonoring of your father? We don't know. But clearly, he is a, a man who has contempt. And where does this contempt for his father come from? Where does this contempt for the God of Israel come from? His upbringing, the circumstances, maybe of the political situation, or from his heart. Where does sin come from? From the heart. It's from the heart the mouth speaks. It's from the heart the mouth, the, the life worships. And all these piles of paganism that he has established in the upper and lower courts of the temple what are they about? What is the central stench of his idolatry? What's the central stench of Manasseh's idolatry? It's like, it's like rotting flesh. I mean, that's the stench I could almost imagine. Well, the central stench is control. Control. Idolatry is about control. Just thinking of the gods here, the fertility cult practices of Baal and Asherah were to participate in these fertility cults in order that you would gain fertility not only of the womb, but fertility of the field, right? That rain would be brought so that you would have fertility both 
in the womb and in the field. Thus, if you do these practices, you can manipulate the gods to do what you want them to do. And then there's the astral worship, which is of the sun, moon, and stars, and often those came with books, and you could interpret omens or certain constellations and then look at these books, and in those books you could tell what future event might be happening so that you were prepared for that event, which is a form of control. Like someone reading their horoscope, right? What's that about? It's about prospering your own life. It's about you being in control. Pagan worship was no different. It was about being in control or spiritism to receive secret knowledge, to know how to act now and in the future. And only you had it, right? Because you had the secret knowledge. You had the gnosis. You were woke in the ancient world. That's what it would have been. Wokeness in the ancient world. Ah, I've, spec I've spoken to my necromancer, that person who speaks for the dead, and they have told me something secret that only I know about what is to unfold. What is that fundamentally about? It's about control. That's the man you see before us, a man who wants to be in control. All of this is, is an illustration of control. But it's an illusion, isn't it? This whole system of paganism that he has constructed from the many different religions of the tribes and the people groups around him is nothing more than an illusion of control and is doing exactly opposite what the God of Israel is. The God of Israel is not a God you can control. He's not a God you manipulate. No, it is according to His will. Your, His will be done, right? Not my will be done, Jesus said in the garden, but His will be done. In the Lord's Prayer, we talk about that God's will be done. It's not my will be done, but His will be done. The God of Israel is completely, utterly different. He cannot be manipulated, Manasseh, Manasseh and He cannot be controlled. And sometimes we as Christians like to control God too. Pray in a certain way that maybe God will do what you want Him to do. That's, that's his paganism. It's not Christianity. The God that we pray to is a God that wants you to know Him. It's a God who wants your heart, not your practices. It's a God that wants you to trust Him and not manipulate Him. Because manipulation is not trust, is it? If you're a manipulator by nature, you're not a person that trusts. The God we come to calls us to trust Him and to perseveringly trust Him through various different circumstances and uncertainties. And to obey Him with fruitful obedience. This is everything that Manasseh was not. This is not the man who we see before us. Now, this is a man whose heart is so far away from God that you're thinking, who can save such a horrible man? Who can save such a horrible man? Is there any hope for such a wretch like this? Because I think that's an appropriate word to say, right? Wretch? Manasseh. They go well together. They don't rhyme, I know, but 
Manasseh and Rech, I like that. Is there any hope for this man? Well, it appears as you continue on in the narrative, no. That there's no hope for this wretch. In fact, in Manasseh and Judah's perpetual rebellion, he is assured of his removal according to God's word by his servants, you see in verse 10, right? The servants are very clear. In verse 10, the servants, the, or the Lord's servants, the prophets. Now, there's something I think we need to see very clearly about both Judah and Manasseh. So it's not just Manasseh's the bad king and everybody in Judah, they're good. That's not how God is writing, giving us his word. Instead, this is what it says in verse, I want to look at verse 9 and in verse 11. Verse 9, but the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. They're more pagan than pagans. That's what the text is saying. They are more pagan than the Amorites or the Canaanites or the Jebusites. They're way more pagan than the Ammonites and the Moabites. Then you go down to verse 11. And again, we have that same kind of language. It says this, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Again, he's worse than the pagans. Judah is worse than the pagan world around them, and Manasseh, their king, is more pagan than the nations around him. In fact, I would say that most likely... Manasseh's depraved paganism would make any good pagan blush. I mean, this would make any good pagan blush going, I'm bad, but I ain't that bad. That guy, something else over there in Judah. Have you heard? Yes, I've heard. It's crazy what they're doing there in Jerusalem. Yeah, I heard. Did you hear the Asherah pole in the middle? of? The, did you hear that? Where they put the Asherah pole in the temple, that's disrespecting the gods, isn't it? We can't do that. But he's even disrespected the God of Israel, and he's putting that Asherah pole in there. And this is an important, I think is an important piece. The Asherah pole he put in the temple. Did you notice that? He put the Asherah pole in the temple. And this is, this is not a minor piece because it says twice that my name, I will establish my name forever. And he puts an Asherah pole in there. A pagan symbol of a fertility cult. And what is he saying? He's saying, I do not believe in the God who forgives. I do not believe in the God who sustains. I do not believe in the God who guides. And I do not believe in the God who hears our prayers. This is a dead God that doesn't exist. What do I mean by that? You might be going, what's he talking about? Well, in the holy place, what do you have? You have the altar of incense for prayer, the God who listens. You have the showbread table, the God who sustains. And you have the menorah, the God who guides. He guided them through the wilderness, didn't he, from the pillar of fire. And of course, the altar, the bronze altar was the God who forgives, where you put your sacrifice on first. And Manasseh is saying, 
to God is, I hate you. You're dead to me. I want nothing to do with you. It's, it's quite stunningly ugly. And God is clear, I will put my name in Jerusalem. I will put my name forever in this place. And Manasseh is saying, no, you won't. My name, my gods, my way. Get out of my life, God. I don't need you. That's, the, that's this moment. And then God finally says, there's, this is the point of no return. There's a, this, this is, there's a point of no redeemed turn for Manasseh, for Jerusalem and Judah. It's done. And, and you see this later in the book at the very end of the last Kings in 2 Kings chapter 24. And I wanted to read this briefly. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land. And Jehoiakim became his vassal three years later. But when, then he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent the Babylonians, Arameans, Moabites, Ammonites, raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servant, the prophets. That's the same language that was given to Manasseh. The servants, you're the prophets. Surely these things happen to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from this, his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. That's a stunning piece. The Lord was not willing to forgive. This is the point of no return. Manasseh's kingship is the, is the point of no return. I mean, this is the man who's filled the streets of Jerusalem with its citizens' blood. It's not only perverted worship. This man has no justice, no righteousness. This is a city of death. And it's the point, it appears, of no return. And if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 33, 2 Corinthians 33, verse 10, not Corinthians, Chronicles. Now you're going to hear more pages turning. Wrong way. Turn the other way. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10. There's a part of the story in Kings that is not present, that we, we don't see when we read it. But I think this part is important because it speaks of Manasseh's exile, actually. Hmm, didn't, we didn't really know that from the king's story, the second king's story. We pick up at 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. That's the part of the story that Kings leaves out, but the chronicler puts in that Manasseh, this evil man, was himself exiled to Babylon, or actually to Assyria, to Assyria. Now, we don't know how this happened. Some people believe this is a, a conflict in the year 652, 648, between the king of Babylon and the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria conquered the king of Babylon, which is his older brother. <laughs> so they're all related. 
But during that period of time, it is possible that the king of, it, of Judah, Manasseh, aligned himself with the king of Babylon and got himself in a bit of trouble, if you know what I mean. And because of that bit of, bit of trouble, Ashurbanipal, who was the king at the time of Assyria, went over, got Manasseh by the nose, put the ring in, shackled him, and drug him all the way to Assyria. And that's where we have him exiled. But there's an interesting hook in the story. Well, this man that we, appear, that we would say is a wretch, there's no more hope for him. It's done. This story is done. And yet, what do we find in verse 12? We find his repentance, don't we? Let me read it. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Did you hear that? He humbled himself greatly. The God who said... You're dead. I don't need you. I'm the one who's God. I'm the one who has the power to manipulate the gods. It's now with a, with a hook in his nose and shackled is now a man who has been brought to the lowest place possible and he cries out to God. This godless, wretched man comes to faith in the one true God of Israel. You didn't see that in the story, did you? You didn't think that was possible in this story. But the God that we are talking about this morning is a God that can do impossible things in the hearts and the minds of men, no matter how great the wretch. Like the man that wrote Amazing Grace, he was one fantastic wretch that God saved. John Newton, you've heard his name. And then his reformation is astounding. I wanted to read the reformation again. This is all at the end of his life because I believe he dies by 642. So it's like 648. We're looking only at six years. Six years left on his life. So he is an, he is an old man in the ancient world. But this is what we read about his reformation in Second Chronicles 33. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. This is the God who... This is the man who said, God doesn't listen. And we have God here, as he prays, listens. I do love that. I do love that. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. So somehow he was restored to power. Somehow he was restored to power. Of course, we see the providential hand of God here in the story. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer walls of the city of David, west of the Gion Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid, and here is the... Here is the the important part, he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the images from the temple of the Lord as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. He threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and, sac and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Is this the same guy? That's what I'm thinking. Is, is this the same guy? My goodness. Maybe you know somebody like that, somebody who used to be like Manasseh, but God did a wondrous work in their heart and freed them from their slavery to whatever that was enslaving them in unbelief and blindness, and the scales fell off, 
and the shackles fell off and the dungeon flooded with light and they became a new man, a new woman. That's what we're seeing here. He's worshiping the living God. He's giving offerings. He's instructing the people. But there's one little piece. The people, however, continue to sacrifice in the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Hmm. I, I love this story because it's, there's so much hope for, for even the, the greatest sinner among us. But what wake did this man leave in his family? What wake did he leave in his nation? Was the consequence of his sin just somehow disappeared in the lives of other people? That's not what you see in the story, do we? It appears that even though there was a wondrous reformation in this man, Manasseh, a wondrous reformation, the reformation did not last because his son, Ammon, in two years, reestablished these high places and these altars in the temple. And so Josiah, his grandson, had to break them down. And in fact, it appears that when you get to the Six, end of the 600s and the beginning of the 500s, it's like as if nothing had changed. The people were still as pagan as they were before under Manasseh's reign. And in fact, there was a man, you, you might know him, his name was Jeremiah. Uh, we call him the persevering prophet because everybody hated his guts. That's why. Everybody hated his guts in Jerusalem because he spoke the word of God when no one in Jerusalem wanted to hear the word of God. And oh, by the way, how many converts did he potentially have? We think there was like two, Baruch and actually uh, uh, Ethiopian eunuch. He, he did not have what we call a fruitful ministry. And yet he was God's prophet, speaking to God's people who had completely rejected who? Who had God's people rejected? They had rejected God. Their hearts were far away from Him. And so God's judgment upon them through the Babylonian Empire and on the streets that did not want to hear His message, Jeremiah proclaimed this wondrous hope in the darkest moment of Israel's history. And I say Israel's history because I'm putting them together. I know it's Judah, but it's in Israel's history. Jeremiah said this word, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land, unlike Manasseh did, unlike these kings that are reigning over you right now that like to throw me in the slammer. There's a king coming from Jesse's lineage, a branch, and he will judge what he will reign wisely and do what is just and right. Again, he says later, Jeremiah 33, 15, these same words again, in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land opposite of Manasseh. Not like him at all. A righteous king. A righteous king. And this was the yearning for another 590 years in Israel. And in the later reign of Herod, a young woman in Nazareth was arrested by an angel, Gabriel. We know who she is. She is Mary. And Gabriel said, do not be afraid. 
Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That was a Davidic promise, wasn't it? To David's lineage. Mary was from David's lineage. And here she is being arrested by the wonderful prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah and of Micah and of Zechariah in Nazareth and being told by Gabriel, through you will come the Savior of the world. For through you will come the light of all men who will take scales from men's eyes. Through you, Mary, I will save the world. Not just Jews, because this promise was not just for Jews in the Old Covenant. It was for Jews and Gentiles. That's us. I'm pretty happy that we're included in God's salvation plan. And what the story of Christmas says that is, I think, profoundly, God did not come into the world to save good people. He came from a miserable, sinful line, and one man was the worst of the worst, who God called to repentance and faith in himself from the utter abyss of ruin. And that same God came into the world and became man without no, without no sin, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we're celebrating. So no matter what your past, no matter what your sin, we find in the Christmas story, Christ came to save sinner, a sinner like you and me and Manasseh and Paul, both great and small, Thanks be to God that he loves people in ways that we do not deserve. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the story of Manasseh and all its ugliness. And yet we see your glorious grace. Reach a man from the pit of hell and snatch him from the fire and transform him. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you too have done that same wondrous miracle in us. And you have called us to yourself. And we have believed on your Son who came at Christmas and died at the cross. May our celebrations today, well, in fact, for all eternity, be one of full-hearted joy in the wonder that you love us. You love sinners. And you did it in such a glorious, unimaginable way. You became sin for us so that we would be righteous and declared the righteous, to be the righteousness of God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Three in one. Amen.